Billy Graham said, churchgoers are like coals in a fire. When they cling together, they keep the flame aglow. When they separate, they die out. I want us to talk this morning about a 21st century church being committed to unity. Our text is the 133rd Psalm, a very short psalm, but a very significant one as we look at what it means to be God's church and God's people. There's a great deal of talk and discussion today and has been over the last 20 years about churches being targeted to certain age groups. And while I believe in targeted ministries within the church, I believe it is wrong for the church to come to the point where they target a church to be exclusively one generational. I think it goes against what the Word of God says that we become so specialized in reaching a group or a type of person or a person with a certain kind of taste that we forget that God came to save the world, not just segments of it, not just parts of it that we're comfortable with. And yet in the church today, we find the problem that there are many one-generational churches. Now that happens for two reasons. Some are by design which means if you're going to start a baby boomer church and all you want to do is reach baby boomers or a Gen X church and all you want to do is reach Gen X, then when that generation dies, you should close your church doors because you're not there to geared to reach their children or those who come after them. Some are that way by design, but most are that way by delinquency. By delinquency. They just quit reaching out. They quit caring. They got us four and no more and, and got the group that they wanted to have and they decided they didn't want to reach anybody else. And while I believe that we need to reach and we need to staff in such a way that we can reach all generations, I, I, I do believe that we need to have a focus as a church that is multi-generational, that is committed to those generations working together and knowing how to get along with one another. It has been amazing to me as I look back over the last 10 years in the life of this church, the things that we have gone through and the changes that we have gone through, whether in staff or in worship or in any other area, and how remarkable the harmony and unity of this church has been. I think it is a testimony to this community that this church has by and large remained united I remember a pastor in town came to me about a month after I came here in 1989 and he said, Michael, you need to understand something. As Sherwood goes, so goes the community. If there are ever problems at Sherwood, there will be problems for all the rest of us. And I have diligently guarded the unity of this church and I am grateful for the harmony, the overall harmony in the body and in the life of this church in spite of our sometimes our differences. Because you see, unity is not a word that is in vogue right now. You don't hear it at the water cooler at work. You don't hear it in the hallways of schools. And you don't hear it in most churches. I just, as I was preparing for this message, I started looking at headlines in the newspaper and watching the news. And, and I noticed one headline at the top of the sports page in USA Today uh, this past week, I think it was Thursday or Friday, and it was a statement, the headline was Tiger Woods' dad. Tiger Woods, Earl Woods says, Tiger Woods does not need the PGA Tour. 
Funny, I thought that's where he made his living. Well, I know he doesn't make his living there. He makes a lot more money other places. But, you know, that is forgetting that it was the tour that gave him the opportunity to be who he is. He owes something to that. We owe something back to the things that give us the opportunity to do what we do. I notice that Gore is supporting lawsuits. That's a headline. You don't hear a lot of talk about unity right now in our country. Not in sports, not in politics, not in churches. And I think if the church is going to make a difference in this culture, then unity, not uniformity, not everybody dressing alike, talking alike, believing alike, but unity is going to be a key to what we are and to what light we will have in this society. In the book Generations at Work, the author says, instead of, instead of unity, you hear the grumbles of irritation as people with wholly different ways of working, talking, and thinking have been tossed together. It's the teeth-gritting sound of generations in collision. Someone has said that we have now reached the point where there is more change in America than at any time since our great-grandparents moved from the farms to the factories. Four generations, it's there in your notes, that are in, alive and active and involved at the beginning of the 21st century. And we realize that thousands of World War II veterans are dying every day, but still we have a major generation of veterans or builders, some people call them. There are 52 million of them. They were born between 1922 and 1943. They were either born prior to World War II or their earliest memories or stories associated with World War II. Their key concern is security, social and otherwise. The over 85 age group is the fastest growing age group in America today. The church that ignores a ministry to senior adults ignores a ministry to the largest growing age group in America and will increasingly grow. These folks remember Pearl Harbor. They remember the atomic bomb. They remember where they were when FDR died. Baseball and football are their primary sports, and church was a social center and still is for veterans and for builders. You come to Boomers, born between 1943 and 1960, that's me, 73.2 million, raised at a time of optimism and opportunity and expansion. Baby boomers were the first generation to be highly influenced by music. Music defines almost every generation, and this was the first generation. We remember the first man on the moon. We remember where we were when Kennedy was assassinated. I remember when the Beatles hit America's shores. I remember when we burned Beatles' records because John Lennon said he was more popular than Jesus Christ. I remember Elvis. Basketball was a primary sport of baby boomers. The church was out of touch with most baby boomers during the Jesus movement when it had an opportunity to reach them. The church said, as some churches still do, we don't want those long-haired young people in our church. And that was part of what caused us to begin to lose America because the church wasn't ready for young people who wanted to be on fire for God. Thirdly, there's Generation X. 1960 to 1980s when they were born, 70.1 million. They're also known as baby busters. They remember disco and punk and are asking God to forgive them for it. 
They remember the Iran hostages. They tend to reject baby boomer language. Their key emphasis as a whole is rollerblading and rock climbing. They're open to the church because they want a sense of belonging and family. The majority of Generation X come from broken homes and do not have a dad that they have a relationship with. Generation Nexters, 1980 to 2000, 69.7 million and rising. They are highly influenced by high-tech and postmodern thinking, which is no absolutes. Rap music and Latin music has become a very significant part of their culture. They are considered the first generation in America to be post-Christian. For this generation, church is optional, but they long for relationships. Now, every one of these four generations or these four groupings has a unique perspective on life, on work, on culture, on what makes up a hero, and on what is a priority. They're all different. Peter Drucker says there's an enormous need to build the awareness that there is something beyond you and something beyond the moment and something that is not only greater than you but different from you. That is why what churches are doing is so incredibly important. The key is we are called as a church to minister to people from birth to the grave. We have members of our church that are over 100 years old, and our ministry to that person is just as important as the ministry to the newest child that was born and everybody that's in between. Nobody can become unimportant. We cannot have unity from 102 to one day old unless the Holy Spirit of God does that. God has to bring that about. And the church that says we don't want to work on that is denying the power of the Holy Spirit to turn people's hearts, to change people's hearts, and to put people together. C.S. Lewis said divisions between Christians are a sin and a scandal. Psalms 133 in verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down from the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Now, when, scriptural, when you talk about scriptural unity, it is not at the expense of truth. It is on the basis of truth. When you're dealing with unity, it's not at the expense of truth. Some people think that if there's going to be unity, then, then we, we have to all just, just kind of just do something weird. No, that's not it. That's, that, that's, that may be uniformity, but it's not unity. You see, when you have unity, it is built around truth and around absolutes. One of the reasons why we're in a problem and a crisis in our culture today and in our society today is because we have some people that think law is negotiable and others who believe that law is law and that somebody 200 years ago knew what they were doing. Some people today think those 200 years ago should be ignored. Other people think it should be followed. Now, if you follow that line of thinking, then what's the difference between saying law 200 years ago is not relevant and law 3,000 years ago in Exodus is not relevant? If law is negotiable, 
then we're in trouble. And you will not have unity and you will not have consensus and you will not have people working together if there are no absolutes around which they work. Spurgeon said that the best way to promote unity is to promote truth. Now this psalm is an interesting song. It's, it's one of 15 songs of ascent. They are found in Psalms 120 through 134. It, these were sung by Jewish pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem for the holy festive days, three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. This psalm was written by David. It gives an overview of the fundamental of the faith community. But if you were right by Psalm 133, 2 Samuel chapter 5. In 2 Samuel 5, we won't look there this morning because of time, but in 2 Samuel 5, you have the story of the 12 tribes coming together under David's leadership. And the northern tribes said, we are your flesh and blood and we want to follow the Lord under your leading. It was after this that David wrote this psalm. When the tribes all came together, they came under David's leadership, and then and only then was he able to take the Ark of the Covenant, bring it to Jerusalem, and all the 12 tribes came together to worship one God. Now you've got to realize how significant that was. For in the book of Judges, 11 of the tribes had tried to destroy the tribe of Benjamin. Now they're all coming together large and small, urban and rural, rich and poor. They are coming together in one place to worship one God. And so in verse 1 he says, Behold, take a look at, examine this closely. Notice how important this is. Unity is what God says he wants. And so there are four definitions of Christian community and unity in this passage. Number one, it is good and pleasant. How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Good is objective. It's objective. It's the way God wants it to be. God says it's good when we dwell together in unity. So if God's people, either in a group or in a church, are not together, then that's not good. If we don't have a common bond and a common focus then that's not good. God says it's good when there's unity among his people. Then he says it's pleasant. That's subjective. That should be what we want it to be. That should be what we want it to be. Some of you have been like I have in churches where it seemed like all anybody wanted to do was fight and argue. And you, you spend time at work all week and you go to on your job and you're dealing with a supervisor, you're dealing with your employees or you're dealing with somebody else and there's arguing and there's bickering and there's backbiting and the reason the world doesn't come to church is they don't want to do on Sunday on their day off what they have to put up with all week long. And so the church needs to be a refuge. It needs to be a haven. It needs to be a place where there is unity built up, not because we live in isolation from each other, but because we've developed a relationship with each other. I think there's a quote in your notes by Philip Slater, The Pursuit of Loneliness. We seek a private house, a private means of transportation, a private garden, a private laundry, self-service stores, do-it-yourself skills of every kind. An enormous technology seems to have set itself the task of making it unnecessary for one human being ever to ask another in the course of going about his daily life. We seek more and more privacy and feel more and more alienated and lonely when we get it. 
Our encounters with others tend increasingly to be competitive as a result of the search for privacy. This idea of isolation has impacted the church. It's hard to get people to come to church because people are worried about what happens when I get in a group of people, if I don't know them, if I, if I don't work with them. What happens if I don't know anybody? How are they going to respond to me? And the church has to have a message of unity for those people that it is a safe environment for them to come and walk in and to sit in and to learn in. Not isolation. I, I remember uh, when uh, Peter and Jetta Badu were here a number of years back. He's a a pastor of a church in Romania, and uh, Terry took uh, Jetta on some trips with her, and, and so they went, to the, they went in, she pulled in and got a Coke at, at Burger King, and then went through the laundry, through the drive-thru, and went through the drive-thru at Burger King, went through the drive-thru at the laundry, pulled up to the ATM, got cash, and went through the drive-thru and picked up prescriptions at the drugstore, and Jetta's from Romania, they don't have all this kind of stuff, and she looked at Terry and said, do you people ever get out of your cars? You know, do you not go in and talk to anybody? You know, have you noticed how our culture has made it easy for us to not have to relate to people? It's made it very easy for us to never get to know anybody. You know, I remember in my dad's drugstore, my dad knew the name of everybody that came in that store. His livelihood depended on it. Now I can go get a prescription filled. I don't know the name of the pharmacist unless their picture is there and they've got their name under it and they might happen to look up from their job and say hello to me. Maybe. You see, we become impersonal in our society. We become so isolated from one another, but God says it's good when His people understand that unity is a driving force in the gospel message. Secondly, it is for brothers. It is for brothers. Now, I'm an only child, but there are no only children in God's family. There are no orphans. There are no only children. We're a family. And, and I love what uh, Chuck Swindoll says, porcupines can't dance. But what if they could? Just imagine those prickly creatures, the animal kingdom's version of the cactus, gliding and whirling around the ballroom and an orchestra's waltz, or locked in the torrid embrace of a tango, cheek to cheek, arm to arm, quill to quill. To some observers, the church looks more like the annual porcupine ball than a tightly knit family. Many of us wince at the thought of getting close to someone else so we maintain a safe distance. Folks, the Scripture's never intended for us to be porcupines. The word that the Greek uses for the church, the word that we often translate fellowship, is koinonia, and it means common. The root meaning means to have something in common with one another. And although our backgrounds are different, maybe our socioeconomic uh, backgrounds are different, maybe our raising is different, you may be an Auburn fan and somebody next to you may be a Georgia fan. God help you both. But we have something in common that is greater than our preferences, and that is our Lord. And it is for brothers because we are a family together. This truth is for believers and it's for brothers. Now, there are two ways that the church expresses fellowship. One is by sharing with someone. By sharing with someone. Now, how do I share with somebody? If they have a need, I try to help meet it. 
That's why we ask you to serve. That's why we ask you to give. That's why we ask you to be on the pastor's team. That's why we ask you to be involved in something like SOS, that we can share with someone what God has given us to by sharing in something. By sharing in something. The scripture tells us that when one laughs, we should all laugh, and when one weeps, we should all weep. We celebrate together, we have sorrow together. Did you notice how the Christian community came together in the flood? We didn't worry about if it was a Methodist or a Baptist or an Episcopalian or a Catholic building a house. If somebody's house was being built or repaired or sheetrock was being taken out, it was just that the community decided that the crisis would make us share in this moment together and work together. It is sad that we have to have crisis to bring us together as a people. We shouldn't have to ask, well, where do they go to church? Well, where do they live? Well, what party are they in? Well, what are they thinking? How do they feel? There's a coming together, but like any family, we've got our differences. You know, when you walk through the baptismal waters, you didn't go through a cookie cutter that took away all your distinctiveness, that took away your personality, that put, took away your likes and dislikes, but we are a family. And God wants us to serve and work together. Real families share with one another. That means that only immature people say, that's mine, you can't have it. Remember when your kids did that? How you said, now that's not the way we are in this family. We're all going to share. You know, we're going to share. Now why don't you share with him or why don't you share with her? No, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. That's the way babies act. That's not the way brothers are supposed to act. And we share in times of sorrow, times of celebration. Although we're different. Some of us like worship to be more meditative. Some of us like it to be loud. Some of us are artistic. Others are sports nuts. But we come together not to talk about our differences, but to talk about what we have in common. Does that make sense? This way means yes. This way, this, in unity, please, this way. We come together to talk about what we've got in common, what brings us together, and what we have in common is more significant and more important than our differences. It is more valuable to this culture that the church lay aside some of the things that are petty and focus on the things that are important. Thirdly, we dwell together. We dwell together. Unity is not something to be achieved. It is something to be recognized. You see, we don't work for unity. We work from the unity that's been given us by the Holy Spirit. Unity is not something that we achieve. It is something to be recognized. There are two things that you can't do alone. Are you ready? This is not very profound. You cannot be married alone. And you cannot be a Christian alone. God intended for Christians to live together in community called the church. His body, His bride. And just like you cannot be married alone, you can't be a Christian alone. You see, God never works with people in isolation. He works with people intimately, but never in isolation. God doesn't work in isolation. God doesn't say, okay, I'll put you over here and y'all don't talk, and I'll put you over here and, and you don't talk to anybody else, and I'll put you over here. God does speak to us individually. 
but he does not work with us in isolation. He wants us to be together. That means he wants us to come together at family reunions. That's why he says in Hebrews 10, 25, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Jesus chose 12 and he spent time with them. Paul took a team with him when he did his work. In Acts chapter 2, 120 were together in one place. God wants us to be together. Now, there are a couple of things out of that that I just want to comment on. Number one, I can pick my friends, but I can't pick my family. Wish that was reversed. <laughs> you got any members of your family that just kind of put you to the edge? Anybody out there want to confess this this morning? Okay, the rest of you are just not being honest. You got a cousin or an aunt or an uncle. I mean, when you see them, it's just like fingernails on the chalkboard. It just goes down and down. And they always look at you like you're the, you know, you were the mistake of the family. All of us have family members like that. But, you know, I can't pick my family and pick my friends. I can pick who I spend a lot of time with, but if they're a member of my family, then they're a member of my family. And that's true in the church. I may pick the people that I spend more time with than others, and you may have people that you like to spend more time with with others, but everybody that walks through these doors as a believer is a member of your family, and we ought to speak to the family when they show up. We need to fellowship with the family. We need to talk to the family. We don't just need to stay in our own holy huddles all the time. We need to get out and find some new members of the family and greet them and welcome them and make them feel like they're a part of the family. That's important. I love the story John Maxwell talks about visitors. Always, you always know when visitors come to a church because they always come in the wrong door. They come in the one that squeaks. All the members know that door doesn't squeak, but the visitors don't. And when a visitor in a typical little church comes in, he comes in the door that squeaks, and everybody in the church turns around and looks at him, stares at him. And then the, everybody in the church gives them this look on their face. You better not come sit on my pew. Now, I love Maxwell's story, and I've told this before, but he says, you know, he said, I just keep a gun under the pulpit. He said, the next person does it, I just shoot them in the leg. He said, then when they're hobbling down the hall, I said, what happened? I said, the pastor shot me in the leg. I wouldn't talk to a guest. Well, I'd run out of bullets. <laughs> I have to have an Uzi. <laughs> Number two, if I am a part of a family and if I'm supposed to dwell together, not only I, I can't pick my family, but I cannot be a perennial visitor. I have to get involved. I have to join. I'm not just kind of part of the family. I am a part of the family. We, uh, we found out a few months ago that we have an 11-year-old niece that we didn't know we had. And that was an interesting revelation for us. And in the process of all of that, we've tried to do some things to try to make that little girl feel like, hey, for 11 years we haven't known you've existed, but now that we know... You're a part of our family. You matter to us. What happens in your life matters to us. Now you see, folks, 
sometimes things are going to happen in your life that just don't quite fit the way you thought it was going to work out. And sometimes you find out you got a member of the family that you didn't know you had, and you're going to need to accept them just like they are and love them unconditionally. Unconditionally. So that they can feel a part of a family. Fourthly, it's God's gift, it's God's gift to us. Three times in these three verses you find the words coming down. It describes oil descending and dew descending. And oil and water are both symbols of the Holy Spirit. He says, the Spirit of God is coming down. And notice what happens when the Spirit of God comes down in verse 3. For there the Lord commanded the blessing. Now again, it's not something to be achieved. It's something to be recognized. The blessing has already been given. The unity has already been given and is available by the Holy Spirit. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, the church is nothing but a section of humanity in which Christ has already taken form. A section of humanity. People need to look at this church and say, that's a section of humanity in which Christ has already taken form. Now, the, look at the result of this gift. The Lord has commanded the blessing. The result of this gift or this blessing is life forever. Now, we'll dwell in unity one day in heaven, but, but we are supposed to dwell in unity through the Spirit on earth. There are several characteristics of that. Number one, it is not contrived, worked up, or manipulated. It's not the way the world works. Hi, how are you? Good to see you. Glad to see you. It's not cliches. It's not something you have to put on a game face to go do. It's an overflow of what the Holy Spirit of God has done in you already. God has given you a love for other people through the power of His Holy Spirit and it comes out of you. It doesn't have to be forced on you. Number two, it's not conformity. It's about consistency. It's not conformity. It's about consistency. It's not, okay, I'll, you know, I'll go talk to some people. I don't know. Okay, I'll fit in. If that's what makes you happy, if that's what you want us to do, I'll do it. Okay, I'll go across the room and I'll... That's not it. It's just about consistently thinking, this is the way I need to be. This is the way I need to be. I need to look for people. Just consistency. We have to be consistent in being committed to unity. Not just when we hear a sermon about it, but in our day-to-day -day living. Number three... It's about building bridges, not walls. It's about building bridges, not walls. A lot of people building walls today. We need to be building bridges. Number four, it's about being concerned about principles more than preferences. It's about being concerned more about principles than preferences. That I'm going to do what's right even if my personal preference is, I don't want to do that. It's an act of my will. It's a choice that I make. That there's a principle in God's Word about unity. There's a principle in God's Word about loving unconditionally. There's a principle of agape love and what God did for me and what the Holy Spirit has empowered me to do, I will choose to do whether I feel like it or not. And then finally... 
You don't make it happen, the Spirit orchestrates it. You don't make it happen, the Spirit orchestrates it. You know, sometimes we try, society tries to force groups together. Society says, well, let, let's get these people and we'll make them be together. And they're going to have to like it. It's not the way the church functions. The way the church functions is the Spirit of God brings people together. And he takes down their differences and he takes down their walls and he takes down their baggage and he, and he puts all that stuff to the side and he says, now, if the two of you can agree on Jesus Christ, then the two of you can deal with all the other stuff. You see, it's a gift and we accept it and we rejoice in it. In John 17, verses 20 through 26, five times Jesus says, God the Father is the source of our unity. He prays for our unity in John 17. Because the gift is a blessing, not an achievement. He prays that we would be one as He and the Father are one. <laughs> I tell you what, His prayer is still unanswered. But listen, if it was important to Jesus that there be unity, it better be important to us that there is unity. If it was important enough that in the last hour when he was facing the cross to die for our sins, that what was on his mind was his disciples, that they might be one as he and the Father are one, inseparable, undivided, single purpose, single motive, unconditional love. If he and the Father were like that, then he says, I want my people to be like that. The scripture does not say they'll know we are Christians because we club one another. It says they'll know we are Christians because we love one another. And that is an unconditional thing that has to happen in our lives. You see, when a church is like that, it's a magnet for people that don't know Christ. And I promise you, every lost person in Albany, Georgia, in Lee County and surrounding areas, every one of them can name to you every church that's fighting we need to be the light that sits on a hill that says, that's not who we are. We are God's people, united in love. One heart, one mind, one spirit. Yes, we have our differences. Yes, we come from different walks of life. Yes, we have uniquenesses. But what brings us together is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Francis Schaeffer says, We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son... Nor can we expect the world to believe that Jesus' claims are true and that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Now listen. We live in a divided city. You don't have to be told that. Our city is divided. There's a river that runs down the middle of this city and divides this city, but I want to tell you, there, is, there are attitudes that also divide this city. And we're not willing to listen to each other. I'm not trying to sound like a liberal politician here. I'm trying to sound like what it's going to take for us to change the city in which we live. I was in a restaurant the other day, one of the African-American pastors that I see in that restaurant every week stopped at the door and he said, Pastor, after the first year, he said, I want you to come preach my church. And I tell you what, that is one of the most humbling things that can happen to me. 
because it says that somehow, in some small way, that this church has communicated that we're not building walls, we're building bridges. And that speaks as much for you as it does for anything that I do. We live in a divided city. Now, we can gripe about it. We can vote on it. We can have a recount. It's not going to change it. And I want to tell you something. Lee County is divided too. You can't move away from it. Sylvester's divided. Dawson's divided. Tifton's divided. This whole region's divided. Now, is the church going to stand up and say, I've got a solution to division? Or are we just going to let it keep going on? We live in a divided country. 100 million people voted last Tuesday, and it's split right down the middle. Right down the middle. It's split over more than politics. It's split over culture, over what's right and wrong. It's split over moral and ethical issues. And I want to tell you something. The church has killed itself. The church, in my opinion, this is just my opinion. You don't have to agree. The church has killed itself by people standing on corners with signs instead of getting on our knees and praying. We've picketed and haven't changed the abortion issue in America. If we had prayed as much as we had griped, it might have already been changed. You see, we have gone to the world's methods of solving the world's problems. And for thousands of years, the world has proven it can't solve its problems. There's only one person that can solve the problems of this world, and that's Jesus Christ. There's only one place where the problems of this world can be laid aside and people can come together in a spirit of oneness, and that's in the church of Jesus Christ. It is time for the church to be a light in a dark world. It is time for the church to be love in a world that is filled with hatred. It is time for the church to be united in a world that is divided. If we want to have a witness, if we want to have an impact in this culture, then the church has got to stand up and the world has got to look at us and say, they dwell in unity. What have they got that we don't have? And the answer is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, folks, until the church quits fighting and fussing, we're going to a Georgia Baptist convention this week and there's every anticipation that there's going to be a fuss there. That's why I hate to go to conventions. Because I'm tired of people with agendas. I'm tired of people with platforms. I'm tired of people that think they know better than God. I'm weary of fighting battles with folks that I should be able to sit down and pray with. I'm tired of it. That does not mean I will compromise the truth because I will die for the truth. But it means that somehow that the enemy figured out if I can keep the prayer of Jesus from being answered, that I can keep the church from winning the world to Christ. And so he works, not in politics, 
He works in churches to get fights and arguments and divisions going on. And the church of Jesus Christ and this church in particular needs to stand up at this 21st century in this late hour in the life of this country and say this church, if nobody else does it, this church is wholly, solely, completely committed to the unity of the body of Christ and that is more important to us than any of our personal preferences. And if we do that, then they will come because this will be the only place in town where they see it. The church needs to be a refuge for people that are tired of going to war. It needs to be a place for people who know that the real warfare is with the enemy of our flesh and our soul, the devil. It's not with the person that lives next door or across the street or on the other side of the river. It's with the devil. Let's fight the right battles, folks. And let's not lose the war fighting on the wrong battlefields.